This episode is brought to you by The Gritting Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. Spend $60 or more on Elite Cosmetics during the month of October and get a free vegan essential mascara with your purchase using the code PAWOCTOBER at grittinggoat.ca. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Apparently we're live. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Here we are. Here Hello. we are. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to, I don't even know what number, oh, I guess it's episode 86, but this is a special live edition of Pawn Order coming to you from the Student Conference Day at the Canadian Animal Law Conference 2021. Woo, the third annual, right? Third annual. Look at us go. Third annual. Three it's times a tradition now. It's a tradition. Yes. yes. We've done it three times. Tradition <laughs> and an institution. I like that. I like that. Clever. It is well, kind of an institution. Well, I'm Camille Labchuk and joined today by both of my co-hosts, which is a rare and special treat. We've got Jessica Scott-Reed and Peter Sankoff. Hello, you two. Hello Hello from Winnipeg. Hello. Uh, Hello from Edmonton. Yes, we're from all over the place. Oh yeah, we're spanning the country. Look at us. Yeah, pretty much coast to coast. So you Westerners, is it freezing there yet? Is it already winter out west? It's, it's gorgeous. It's like 20, 22 degrees outside. My kids are in short sleeves raking the lawn. Yeah, here too. Uh, it's been like last week we had like a heat wave. It was like 30 degrees. And I think next week it's going up to 25 degrees. I mean, it's like, it's nice. It's scary, but we're enjoying it. <laughs> I know. I mean, two years ago, I guess it was two years ago was our first conference in Halifax. It was, it was like, so nice. I'm pretty sure some mornings there was frost. Like it was it was cold. Warm. It was. It felt like fall. This does not feel like fall. I just picked tomatoes out of my garden for, for lunch today. So mm. that's a little bit strange. We're going we're gonna to be in fall very, very soon. So this is a nice little respite. It's Let's not to get complain. Really cold by Monday. <laughs> yeah, like Monday. I'm not... Uh, I'll, it'll be snowing by Tuesday. So I'm not uh, I'm not getting anxious about where we are. Let's put it that way. Can I just go back for a second, Peter? Are your kids home from school? Like, did you keep them home from school so you can make them rake leaves today? Or are they just... <laughs> I wish. No, they... Uh, <laughs> They combined, uh, the schools gave them a, a four day weekend to combine with uh, Truth and Reconciliation Day. So they've, oh, been, yes, they the were extra off day. Today, oh. yes. But it's great to watch them rake leaves. This is kind of a first. Like my kids working at all is like kind of a miracle. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's very exciting just to watch. You'll have to teach me class. how to get them to do that. I definitely could use that kind of help around here. <laughs> well, they have to grow up old enough that they can actually do it. Oh, and okay, even then, awesome. then it's a lot of resistance. And I, I gotta think wait. I think there's money involved. I think these are like the only ways to get them motivated to do things. A bribe. Gotcha. I believe so. Yes. Remuneration for work done. That's what we're calling it. So, but it is fun to watch. I'm literally watching them work. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks. Well, this is what's going to happen today. So we're so excited to be doing this live episode from the conference for a third 
time, third year in a row. Uh, we're going to chat a little bit. And then instead of doing our usual news sections, main topics, so on and so forth, we're just going to take questions from the audience for as long as you've got questions for. Uh, this is usually fun. We end up having great discussions. And we also have a number of trivia questions, which is also the third time we've done the trivia questions at this event. So we'll ask. And I believe that we have the ability to give out, you know, somebody does really well and gets a lot of answers to the trivia question. I think it's possible they might get a prize. So get those mean something hands like up this. Oh. This is this is time to ask any questions. And I don't have a lot of trivia questions, but it occurred to me that one great question you could ask or I could ask as a trivia question is something like, when did Camille win her last award? That's something <laughs> worth asking. I think that's 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 going with the theme of the show. Hardy, har, har, har. I can say it's been a long time. And I think you two have won <laughs> multiple awards since I've won anything, but that's all right. <laughs> but for me, oh, Peter... <laughs> For those of you, part of my, it's part of my, it's part of my charm. Charm, charm. For those of you listening, I'm using air quotes as I say the word charm. charm. Uh, for those of you listening, you also just missed that Jess held up her paw and order mug, which oh yes is potentially one of the prizes on offering. So if anybody does super well in the trivia, you might want to check your it's mailbox a good one. for one of those. It's a good mug. Oh yeah, you love the mug. We all use the mug. I use the mug every morning, though I of course use the special individual super size mug, which we've talked about on a past show. I have wait. A there's another mug. <laughs> Our producer sent it to me after I complained that there wasn't enough room in the regular mug for my coffee. So she she got a custom super size one done. Oh, we need to start putting that one in the shop. I need a bigger mug. To, Mine's already empty. Ha- the, the rule is you have to be a host for three years first. Oh. Then you get the super size mug. <laughs> mean <laughs> i don't know how long it's been it's obviously been how long it's not been three years <laughs> been over a year what yeah you're just over a year just i'm working yeah. towards <laughs> it now i have a goal now i have something to work towards <laughs> oh, okay well we're excited for your questions we're excited for trivia uh just a reminder to anyone listening to this episode that by the time this episode's released anyone that say missed the conference and would like to check it out still can because we are archiving the sessions we are sharing them for at least 60 days on the conference website platform. So you can go visit the website, sign up for the conference um, and check out the uh, the panel, check out this podcast, check out the rest of the sessions, which are going to be pretty cool. Um, there's also a special discount for post-event purchases. So you are getting a bit of a deal. Now, before we get into things, I do want to thank our fantastic conference sponsors. So this year we have the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy again, coming in as our platinum sponsor. Um, Brooks Institute in Animal Justice also collaborated to host uh, today, actually, which is Friday, October 1st of the conference, a special scholars track of presentations, which we're calling the North American Animal Law Conference. Mm -hmm. Um, So four amazing sessions with four incredible scholars going really in-depth on different topics. You can check those out in the archive if you sign up after the event. Uh, I also encourage you to check out the Brooks Institute's Weekly Digest, which is where they provide case briefs, summaries of legislation, all the happenings in animal law comes out once a week, US focused, but there's some Canadian content there too and we may be getting some more Canadian-specific content in the future, which is exciting. But you can do that at thebrooksinstitute.org. Now, we have a gold sponsor too, and that is the Robert and Judith Clark Foundation for Animal Rights. Uh, Bob and Judy... 
Love you, Bob and Judy. <laughs> Wonderful folks who run this foundation. Thank you so much for, for being part of this event. Uh, the Clark Foundation does a lot of work and has been a longtime ally of animal justice, ally of animal justice in supporting the work that we do and supporting the work that uh, many other organizations do and combating cruelty against animals used for experiments, for food, for fashion, and for entertainment. And they also support the growth of the plant-based sector and uh, support people trying to make a difference to the food system. Finally, we have our bronze sponsor, which is the Jeremy Collar Foundation and the Collar Animal Law Forum. Now, the Collar Animal Law Forum is an exciting new initiative by the foundation, which is designed to be a website. It's a repository and database of farmed animal laws from the UK, other countries, but eventually around the world. Uh, I think this is going to be an incredible resource for policymakers, for advocates, for anybody who wants to know more about these issues, for researchers as well. They're having a launch event on October 14th. So most of you listening to this episode will still be able to attend because that's several weeks away. And we will share a link to that event in the show notes. So you can check that out. It's an hour-long launch event and you'll get to learn all about the forum. So huge thank you to all three of our sponsors. Thank you, sponsors. All right. So folks, what have we been up to? What, what have, have you we been up to? Peter? Oh. What have you been up to, Peter? Uh, I always, I always I know what Camille's doing. I never know what you're doing. Oh, um, I've been really busy. I mean, I was in court last week for animals in one case and I'm, I'm in the Supreme Court next week and that's just dominating my time. It's incredibly... Uh, is just ridiculous. It's a very uh, big case with a lot of uh, factum. So I'm just reading and prepping. That's pretty much what's going on. Nothing more exciting than that, unfortunately. That I don't sounds know, exciting. Kind of exciting. Yeah, I guess <laughs> it does so. sound exciting. I mean, going to court for animals isn't that why we're all here? Like, well, that was that was that was last week. Next week is not for animals, it, unless you define people. In, no, I'm going to say no. It's not about animals at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, last week was pretty cool though, because Peter, you did get to make arguments in front of the Alberta Court of Appeal in the Jen case. I did. And we spoke at length about this on the last episode of the podcast. You can check out my interview with Chris Rudnicki, who was co-counsel. That was right before, right before I went in, I believe, right? Yeah. I think it was the day yeah. you, that you went in. Yeah. So cool case. It so was, it was, it was fun. Yeah. Super fun. I watched really you. Fun. I watched you. Uh, is that the one where we could watch online? That's what I watched. Right. And like, I was like, whoo. This is good. I didn't know exactly uh, what was happening, but it sounded great. Well, it's the thing is like the main thing that was happening was we were talking about animals in front of a courtroom and it's amazing how that is still such a major barrier to get over really. And you're you're right. Like just trying to get the courts to listen uh, is amazingly still a big barrier. It's not easy. They, their initial response is no, Uh, they don't want to hear this. It's not important enough. And even just getting over that barrier, I think is really significant. Right. Yeah. So seeing you there, even speaking on it, it's like, it's, it's exhilarating to watch, but at the same time, it's sad that that's exhilarating because it's like, yeah. And, and, and edged. that's, yeah. And what makes it tough as a lawyer is that so much of your time is spent dealing with sort of fundamentals. Like you're just, you're trying to constantly suggest why it's worth hearing. And you're trying to like, it's amazing how much you have to build on that because, you know, and I think it was demonstrated in the hearing personally by some of the questions from the judges that there are real misconceptions about, you know, what animals are and what they deserve. And it's like things that we sort of take as first principles for granted really need to be explained to the judges, like really need to go with, you know, look, animals, you know, I think we're over animals feel pain, but like, it's at that level. It's like, we're talking about, you know, trying to show it's amazing, but it is actually a somewhat controversial principle. Something as simple as animal cruelty law exists to protect 
animals. That is not a, wow. that's not a foregone conclusion. That is something you have to debate to a certain yeah. extent, right? And yeah. that's, that in and of itself is kind of amazing. Uh, but it's also what makes these types of cases so challenging is that you're starting, you have to break down real misconceptions because I honestly believe that most judges and lawyers just don't understand enough about the issues to really be able to engage with them. And that's, that's frustrating. So for example, when I do a criminal case, like next week in the Supreme Court, like we'll have differences about like the principles in play, but like, you're not starting what, like having to reconstruct the basis of the argument. You're just, you jump into the argument because everybody's more or less on the same page, but has a different view of how the principles should apply at stake in the, in the particular case. But in an animal law case, you're really battling from first principles. It's like, you're like, okay, well, let me explain why animals matter. Like that's part of the argument. And it's, it's an amazing thing, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised because there are so few animal cases that have made it to the highest levels of court. Well, Peter, you know, I completely, I can completely understand what you're saying. Even in my work, sometimes I'm only given 500 words to say something in, in a column in the paper. And I have to sometimes set those fundamental thoughts and concepts and arguments out to begin with as mm -hmm. well. The idea that, you know, that these laws are in place, that these laws don't actually do what people think that they do. Uh, and, and that could take up a lot of space in my little 500 words that I'm allowed. And it's, it's annoying to have to start from square one to know that your audience can sometimes be a million people who aren't starting from that same fundamental place that you are. Yeah, I think that's right. And I actually really struggle with what Peter and you have just described, which is like remembering that not everybody understands these issues as well as we do, or even thinks yes. that they're relevant or important. And so I think, Peter, you're right. I definitely picked up an undertone of that um, from the judges who were asking questions. I mean, th there was some pushback about the idea that animals are some of the most vulnerable victims in society, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, the question was, you know, what about children? Um, so I won't make any further comment on that other than to say it's not a question I have thought about recently because I've satisfied myself to the answer about that. But I think it's something that other people who are new to the material might ask. Well, yeah, that's, that's it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I thought, you know, as a litigator, you make decisions on the fly and I wasn't expecting to get pushback on that question. And you have mm. to make a decision when you're dealing with limited time limits. Well, do I engage on this point and really fight back on that idea? Or do you move on and make sure you can get to the rest of your arguments? And I chose the latter. And it's the one thing I regret because I really think I should have pushed back harder on that idea. I mean, the answer to that question is, is pretty straightforward. It's not, it's, it's, I actually, I actually think animals are the most vulnerable beings in our society because they're the most disposable, which to me is the issue. It's not about whether children are weaker or, or than animals. That's not really the issue as the judge saw it. The issue is, you know, human beings are protected by their status. That's the difference, right? Whereas animals mm -hmm. are protected by nothing. They're disposable. If, if we ever got to the point that you could dispose of your baby and there wouldn't be some type of investigation, I'd agree that babies are as vulnerable as animals, but animals are not protected, registered or anything. Anyway, I'm now answering the question the way I wish <laughs> I'd answered it. But the point I'm trying to make is like in the moment you have to make those decisions. But what's, what surprised me is that that was a real question that has to be answered again, because we have to be careful as animal law lawyers or whatever we do, that you can never jump over the basic presumption. Like you can never, yeah. I learn that every year when I teach animals in the law, right? I learn it because like my students come in and most of them are not, you know, they like animals or whatever, or they even love animals, but they're not really understanding why the law is so bad to animals. And you really have to get that to them in the first little bit. And it's really, it's amazing um, how eye-opening that is for most lawyers 
lawyers, law students, or judges. That's a, that's such an important point that the reminder, even for ourselves, right, that we have to know who our audience is. And, and for my case, I've actually been running into it with editors in the last six months or so. I've been getting kind of in trouble because I've been making these assumptions because I guess I've been doing this for so long that I'm I'm floating over those fundamentals and I'm not including them when I always have to include them. And I'm making assumptions about what the audience knows. Um, and I'm being called on it by editors saying, you know, you can't just say battery cages. Not everybody knows what battery cages. You can't just say baseline industry standards. People don't know what that means. And, you know, when you've been in this for so long, you, you forget that you have to explain these things every single time to yeah. your audience because we are yeah. living in a little bubble. <laughs> it's like the, uh, the op-ed I did with Kendra Coulter. Essentially, the entire op-ed is parliament doesn't do enough for animals. Like to me, that would have been the one line, like, right. duh. That would have been you the whole editorial. the whole thing, like, yeah. Parliament doesn't do crap for animals, duh. Like that would right. be it, right? But instead, we all know that. 800 words or whatever about like, here, here's all the ways in which parliament fails animals. And to be honest, this is just a fraction because we could go on for the rest of the month, right? If we have but in, at the same time, this is what keeps me in business. <laughs> so yeah. for me, I have to explain it. I get paid by <laughs> words. Sometimes, sometimes it's okay. <laughs> Hey, as long as they can feel high word count, nothing to complain about there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of word counts, I know you've been writing some interesting new pieces lately. Jess, what have you been up to? Yeah. So the last one I wrote uh, for Sentient Media, I haven't been doing a whole lot in Canadian media just because the election. It's been a little bit difficult to get animal topics uh, space in media lately. But I think now that things have cooled down a bit, I'm going to I'm going to get back in there. So thankfully, Sentient Media always lets me uh, you know, say what I want to say. And it coincided with my daughter, Clover, who I often talk about on this podcast. She started kindergarten this year. Uh, and so she, it's her first time entering a big public school. And it really inspired me to write this piece for Sentient Media about that uh, experience sending a vegan kid into mainstream public education uh, and then having to fight against big agriculture's influence in the classroom. I had to actually write on a questionnaire that the teacher sent that Clover was vegan. And I had to think about how that could affect her experience and to say things like, you know, a trip to the zoo, we're going to miss that or uh, discussions about animal farming or meat or the zoo or certain certain animal things, even kids in the playground squishing bugs. These are all things that are going to she's going to react differently to than probably your average kid and that the teacher needed to be notified of this. So I wrote the piece for Sentient Media talking about that experience, but then also got into how Big Ag uh, is infiltrating our children's classrooms with different types of educational programs. I've written about it before. Dairy in the Classroom in Ontario was a big one with their new virtual program uh, that discussed nothing at all about how cows have to be perpetually impregnated and their babies are taken away. They just skipped that completely in the entire program. But these things are even at a bigger scale. We have agriculture in the classroom across Canada, across North America. And here in Canada, I think it's sponsored by Bear Monsanto. And they actually have educators that come into the classroom to talk to kids about getting involved in animal agriculture. I just got a PR release from somebody the other day. I put it on Twitter about a new beef uh, program to be, to to teach kids about beef production in the classroom, and uh, it's it's infuriating to know that we're fighting against this right in our in a in a space that should be so neutral. And so, in the piece for Sentient, I included a few programs from advocacy groups uh, in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. that are offering something to counter that. Um, PETA has one. Mercy for Animals has a great one. Different, you know, sort of humane teaching things, but it it, it has 
has to be upon the teacher and upon the school to have these programs, you know, in the classroom. I'm probably going to try it in my kid's school and just see what that process is like. See, see uh, what they say about it. I wonder if they'd let me do it. Yeah, it's tough to fight back against that propaganda effort because it's so well funded. I mean, we know how much the dairy industry has to spend on marketing. It's $80 million marketed budget in 2018, which is just right. the Canadian Dairy Farmers of Canada. Um, I suspect a lot of that is used for school. Maybe they have a separate pot of funding for education. But yeah, the amount of money involved is just quite intense. Um, luckily, we actually have a session at this conference, Animal Ethics in Primary and Secondary Education. Yes. Well, I'm not, I'm not letting this one slip by because obviously I've been through this twice, right. right? And I'm still going through it. And I have a lot, a lot of thoughts on this topic. Um, and it's such an interesting one to get into. I mean, we, we took a different approach. And keep in mind that we went through this quite a few years ago. Like the zoo one in kindergarten was the toughest one for us. Yes. Now, keep in mind for us, that's like, you know, seven, eight years ago for my my daughter. And we were trying to navigate the ways in which we were going to do things. Now, they did not go to the zoo, but we decided not to make it a major issue at the, at the mm. school. That was just the decision that we made. Neither time did they go. We explained why. And that was that. But I mean, the, the, the thing that's really been interesting, I was worried about that. And again, I had my kids earlier than you did. So I was worried at the time veganism was less accepted. And I was worried mm-hmm. about the, the ostracism my kids might mm-hmm. face and stuff like that. Now, keep in mind that my daughter at 12 is a medical marvel. Her bones are about to snap at any moment, right? Because of osteoporosis. And like the meat and dairy industry of Canada is unsure how she's actually alive. Right? We're not sure either. We're just thankful that she is because Well, of I mean, Peter, we're, these- we're abusers, right? We're child <laughs> abusers. I know. I know. That's what I get on Twitter from everybody. Anytime I post anything about being a vegan parent, I am yeah, inundated I know. with stuff about being a, an abuser. <laughs> I've I've made that medical marvel joke on on repeated times. They're sending teams to study my daughter to see how she's possibly alive. Um, no but, but I mean, what's what's amazing to me? I got I got to be honest. And being a parent, as you'll continue to find as they age, is not always the bouquet of roses, fun moments. But I'll be honest with both my son and my daughter, the way they handle their veganism as part of their identity has been, honestly, if it's not the top of the list of the things that I'm proud of for them, it's Mm -hmm. very near the top, especially for my son, because those who listen know my son can occasionally uh, drive me literally around the bend, but he has never so much as questioned his vegan identity. He's just proudly wears it and he goes out and does it. And of course, my daughter is like, you know, she just challenges everything. So the interesting thing, here's the one what I wanted to get to. My daughter's now in junior high. So Mm. for the first time, she's doing what we would have called in the day home ec, but she's in a food course. So now she is in the food course. And of course, I I can't say for certain, but I'm guessing it's the first time the teacher has ever had a vegan student, right? So essentially, it's been no problem at all. The teacher was great about it. And essentially, Penny's gone in and she cooks in a group. So her group are her friends and they're not vegan, but they know she is. And they've just become the vegan group in the home oh, ec course. Wow. Like they're That's doing, so the teacher every day now has to reflect on, okay, well, how do I adjust what we're doing to make it work for the vegans? Oh, good. good. Doing it. And it's oh. been, it's been really fun to listen to. And again, the, the thing that's so surprising to me, honestly, is how normal it's been. Like, I hear what you're that's saying. Great. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that stuff isn't true, but my kids just, every time they hear about it, they get an ag thing in their class. They just raise the other perspective. They're just like, um, well, we don't do that in our house and da, 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 da. And it's just, it's really, it's really been fantastic. So I, it's been much oh, wow. less 
less scary than I thought. That gives me so much hope, Peter, because what I what I say in the article is like if a, if a dairy educator came in the classroom even now and said that cow milk was for humans, I think my five year old would raise her hand and say, no, it's for baby cows. And she's only five. But this is yeah. all she knows. But I hadn't thought about the home ec or, or, or food class. I hadn't even gotten that far because, again, we're only dealing with kindergarten right now. But that's a very good point. And I think that, you know, having kids that are so well educated in, in the vegan fundamentals and that they can bring that into a classroom, they're paving the way for all the ones that are coming before, because I can tell you, she's never been the only vegan that I know of so far in any well, no, I know oh, it's, cool. I know it's, I know that's changing. And of course my yeah. daughter's older and I'm not saying she's, she's certainly not the first vegan kid, but like in Edmonton, it's very possible. She's the first vegan kid right. to get through her elementary school. Right. Like, I, and I think that's way. possible. Right. So I do think that those things normalizing the process is a, is a, is a part of yes. you know, the way in which we get change. That's really great to hear. So I'm, I'm, I know that Santi media is, is uh, excited to have me write a little bit more uh, going forward about vegan parenting and vegan children and things. So maybe Peter, maybe we can collaborate on something since you're a few steps ahead of me. Sounds good. I mean, Anna Pippis's kids are a little yes. younger than mine, but I, I know she's, I've had some talks with her. She has had similar experiences so far. I, I have to be honest, the, I suspect the negative is coming. Like I just can't yeah. get over that fear that especially my son is going to face some sorts of pressure as he gets older. I, I, yeah. I hope that is not the case. I think my daughter will skate through it. I think she's so secure in her identity now that I'm not worried about it. She's not going to be manipulated or pushed into anything. I worry about my son. I hope that's not the case. I just hope that, you know, there's no sorts of, you know, any sort of difference is seized upon potentially when you get older as a boy. Yes. And I think that can be, that can be a problem, but we'll see. Well, you can, you can uh, hook him up with John Rush, our friend, John Rush, the, the former <laughs> CFL football player, who's one of the best male vegan, uh, uh, he could be a mentor, probably. He's he's yeah. definitely one of the best to tell people to screw off. <laughs> John is good for that. Listen to our past episode with John, and you'll see exactly what Jess is talking. Yes, about. yes, he is. He's he's a good advocate for vegan males. <laughs> well, I know we have to move on because we only have so much time, but I just want to comment quickly on one thing that you both mentioned, which is trips to the zoo, which blew my mind that that's actually still happening. Because if you Every look at year. public opinion polls, most people are opposed to zoos. They think they're morally wrong. Like. Like, why are we still sending our children to them if most people believe that? I feel like the pandemic and the idea of outdoor activity kind of gave them a boost at a time when it might not have. Because I know even amongst my community of friends and stuff, going to the zoo was just something that they could do outside that was allowed by public health. And I think that that if that hadn't, if the pandemic hadn't happened, I think things would, would have perhaps been a little different. I hope. Mm, interesting. The Grin and Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and abroad. The Grin and Goat is your one-stop shop for everything, including t-shirts for animal advocacy, footwear, accessories, kids' fashion, personal care products, zero waste, outerwear, and various items for your home. Vegan shopping has never been easier. Whether you're shopping for yourself or buying gifts for a loved one, you have the comfort of knowing that everything at The Grin and Goat is completely animal-free. As a Paw & Order listener, if you spend $60 or more on a late cosmetics during the month of October, you get a free vegan essential mascara with your purchase by using the code PAWOCTOBER at gridandgoat.ca. 
All right. Well, um, we're going to start taking questions soon. We've already we have got a some couple questions. rolling in. Yes. We do. We're always excited for more. Before we answer those questions, I just want to, you know, since we always update people on things that have happened recently, I would be remiss if we did not point out that Canada just had an election and there was tons of discussion as we chatted about on past episodes of the show, tons of discussion about animals. And we endorsed MPs in that election through animal justice. 24 of them just got back in, which was pretty awesome. So I think we're well set up for an animal-friendly parliament coming up. Let's hope. (laughs) Let's hope. There's lots to do. Okay. So let's move on to our questions. We're going to take questions and then move on to the trivia after this. So if you have your question, now is the time to answer or to ask it. But we've got a question from Bianca Morello. Hi, Bianca. She says uh, that she would love to know your opinions on property, person, or something new, which is the topic of tonight's panel. Mm. Well, that is a good one. So yeah, as listeners uh, will know, and perhaps some of you have already seen by the time this show comes out, there's a kickoff event for the panel or for the conference tonight, which is a keynote panel, features five incredible, very well-known scholars who share their views on property, personhood, what is the legal status that we should afford to animals is essentially the question. And there's various various ideological and strategic considerations that go into that. So we've got Manisha Deca, Angela Fernandez, Jessica Eisen, Stephen Wise, and Gary Francione about to discuss this. Um, I will I will say that my own view depends on what issue I'm working on and what kind of strategy and tactic I I think I need to employ. Um, I think without trying to predict too much about what's going to be said tonight, I think that one theme I hope emerges from this is, well, because we're talking about personhood strategies and the legal status of animals, there's often a temptation to reject this idea of legal welfareism, which is improving the conditions that animals live in um, before their status changes to something perhaps more protective for them. And I hope there's a discussion of how you get from A to B. So I find what's often skipped over is this idea that, yeah, animals should have legal personhood and that's the best way to protect their interests. But if you think about that as an end goal, what are the strategies and tactics you want to use in the meantime to get to whatever that enhanced status is? So do you simply go to court and ask judges to do what you want? Well, I don't think that usually works in social change. I think you usually take steps along the way, promote societal discussion and conversation and shift attitudes. So we'll see what happens tonight. Yeah, it's going to be a wild one, right? Like everybody seems to have a little bit of a different perspective on this. That's kind of why you've put them all together. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, I, I know I've known Stephen Wise for a very long time. Um, I met him in New Zealand in like 2004. So I've been privy to his theories and I read his books and his ideas as well as Gary's. But like, I think Stephen and I have a fundamental difference about the extent to which the judiciary is going to be willing to accept the things that he thinks are self-evident. And I think that's going to be an interesting theme of tonight as well. Um, I think personhood, in my opinion, is an idea. Um, And whether or not we think the idea is legally solvable or not is not the end of the discussion. As I've learned in my career as a litigator um, involved in criminal law as well, like there are things that you think are clear and the principles lead from A to B to C, and yet the judiciary is just not yet ready to make a leap that big. And I feel that that's where we are with personhood in terms of the law. I still feel that, you know, if I have to go in and argue with a court about vulnerability 
about uh, how animals are vulnerable. I'm just not convinced that the court is ready for that sort of leap. I do think, to me, I'm more interested and have been for a while since you're asking my personal view. I'm more interested in the something new. I, I think that is where things are going right now. And I saw it in our arguments last week, right, Camille? I mean, I made the point right up at the get-go that animals cannot be victims. They can't because the law doesn't allow them to be victims in the way in which victim is defined in the code unless you consider an animal a person, which no court in Canada has ever done. But I also made the point that animals are victims and the courts treat them as such. So like, what are they? What is this new status or this unusual sense of status that they have? And how does that get recognized in the law? And I actually think that all of the cases that we're seeing, and I'm just looking at the legal cases, leaving the theoretical and the philosophizing, which is super interesting to the side for the moment, all these cases that we comment on in Paw and Order, the cases about family law, for example, the fact that the dog is not a toaster, is the way in which the courts are fumbling towards something new. What, what hasn't happened yet is that no case, and we can we can draw upon the landmark Canadian cases on animal law, the Reese versus Edmonton Zoo, the various family law cases, the cases where judges, like the judges, if you think about where this was two years ago, Camille, when we had the panel, right? The panel of the judges talking, you can see that they're fumbling towards something, but they haven't yet wrapped their head around what it is. And I think to me, that discourse is positive. The idea that we are now arguing about this in a way that sort of has a future to it, even if we don't know what that future is. So when I look at the opinions of today, I know that Gary's going to come in and say X and Stephen Wise is going to say the law points to Y. And I know that the other theorists are going to look at it in a philosophical way about what else is possible or what else is desirable. And I think all of those models are helpful. But ultimately, for the law to take those steps, I agree with you, Camille. The question is, how do we get there and how do we push that way? And I think that I think that is already happening. I think we are challenging judges and politicians to think about animals in different ways. And to me, that is what it will produce is unknown. But I do think we're headed in the right direction to produce something new. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think, why I don't get hung up on exactly what that something new is or what maybe that something old is. But I think you're right, Peter. There's this growing recognition or maybe a burgeoning recognition. I won't say how much it's growing yet. It's growing a little bit, but there's still more education to be done. Just around this idea that we do need something new, that the current system isn't working, that our current consideration of animals' interests is barely consideration at all. So what that ultimately looks like to me isn't really the important part of that conversation. The important part of the conversation is just that we're having it at all. Well, I mm. suspect, though, that two of the speakers tonight are going to posit it as X or Y, right? And they're going to posit it as a binary choice. It's either you have this or you have nothing. That's that's it. Unless they've changed their tune, I believe that that's what Stephen and Gary have advocated for a long time. Essentially, their positions have been that if you're not if you're not if you're not persons of some sort, you you have nothing, and all the rest is just window dressing. And I I've never been of that binary view. I don't think it's quite that simple. Nor do I think that the law necessarily drives us to personhood as as Stephen does. I think that is a really interesting argument. I think some of the counter arguments are compelling. Stephen doesn't, but I do. So until those arguments, let's put it this way. If I'm a leading animal law advocate and I think some of the objections are compelling, imagine where the judges are. Like that's mm. the issue. That's like he keeps saying it's just a matter of time. And I agree it's a matter of time, but I think it may be a much longer <laughs> period of time than Stephen does. Well, you guys are getting me excited for the panel nonetheless. Don't miss it, folks. <laughs> 
Okay, we've got a couple more questions. We have one from Sarah. Sarah's wondering if Peter can tell us about one of the most memorable uh, cases that you've been on related to animals. Well, I mean, there are really only two that come to mind. And it's not that I haven't worked on other cases. I have worked on a bunch of other animal law cases, including I just got, by the way, I didn't mention it because I forgot. I had I got a great settlement, Camille, in the case that, uh, that we had talked about many months ago about a family whose dog died in a terrible way. I can't really mm-hmm. talk about the details of the case, but like... We really pushed back. They tried to really say the animal and the dog wasn't worth anything. And we were just like, no, we're going to go to court if we can't get what we want. And like those cases are memorable for me too, because like the clients feel so much better about the fact that they've been recognized. It's just money because they can't get their beautiful dog back. But the fact that the, the, the people who they believe caused that harm had to pay for it, which again, seems like simple for any other non-animal situation was really great. So that's not one of the most memorable, but that those cases are memorable too. But the two cases, one we just spoke about in Chen, I mean, the most memorable, like when you go to the Supreme Court to talk about animals, I'm pretty convinced that's probably never going to happen again in my lifetime because the, the, those cases just don't get to the Supreme Court very often. If they do, uh, I'll be hoping to lead the charge to be up there. Oh my God, but, that's totally happening. Check yourself <laughs> right there, Peter. We are going back to the Supreme Court, in fact, very soon to talk about animals in the standing context. Sure. That's coming up. No, and I'm no, sure no. that's going to be a very specific animal focused case. Okay. How can there not be- I, I meant I meant me. Yeah. So I don't know All that right. I will All get right. back because I'm not going on this other case. And 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 for me, it for me, it's usually got to be the intersection of criminal criminal and animal. Like that's where I'm my expertise comes in. So as a result, like I, I kind of think that like the DLW case from 2015 was so important in so many ways. It was just important to to be there and be able to speak for animals. Animals. And sorry, the DLW case, we've talked about it many times on this show, is the decision on bestiality and really to get the Supreme Court to recognize that the protection of animals is a fundamental value in Canadian society was really important. And in fact, we relied upon that judgment last week in our discussion in the Chen case in Alberta. So, and that literally will every other case that other we've case, done since yeah. then, every other yeah. case. Yeah. Well, when you can get the Supreme Court to say something. So, to me, that's the most memorable because it's the most influential. Every case, every case that deals with animals for the next couple of decades will always cite those things that were said in that case. So even though we didn't win the day, it was uh, it was the most important case I've ever been on for animals. Cool. All right. Uh, next question. Actually, this is our last question before we go into the Q and A. Uh, sorry, into the trivia, trivia. components. Yeah. Thank you. So Sam is wondering because this is part of the student conference, this podcast. What messages do each of you have for individuals going through Canadian law schools today in 2021? All right. Well. I will start. Um, in 2021, I encourage you all to get out there and do as much as you can in person again after this year of virtualness. Um, I know a lot of you were stuck doing virtual panels and trying to do events remotely, which is just not as authentic as doing the real thing in person. But with vaccination rates quite high on campuses and for the most part and things opening up to some extent, please be careful, but try to do things in person if you can and if it's safe to do so. Because forming those relationships with your classmates, with um, others in the community interested in these areas and these issues is really important, I think, to just advancing your position within the field and developing um, that sense of community. So in-person stuff, if you can, and if it's safe, of course. Um, I would also say just make an effort to get involved with as many groups as you can. If this is something that you're thinking of animal law as a career, my my path towards getting involved in this field was always just um, jumping in with both feet, contacting organizations I was interested in volunteering with, doing stuff through Pro Bono Students Canada, 
I managed to get a summer grant to work at Animal Justice in 2011 when I was in, in law school still, so 10 years ago. And um, I thought that was uh, maybe one of the best sort of experiences in terms of, um, you know, connecting with others in the field. And that eventually paid off. So I'm not I'm not an animal lawyer, but we know that I did spend two weeks as an animal law student at uh, Vermont Law School during my fellowship. So I can I can offer a little something and and seeing what I saw and, and discussing things with the students in that class and just seeing how brilliant everybody was. Um, I would just ask, lend your beautiful knowledge to media. If you ever get the opportunity, opportunity, I tell people all the time, advocates, students, professionals, if you are an animal advocate to any degree and you have something to say, write a letter to the editor. If you see something in the media that is in favor of animals or something that's uh, you know upsetting to you that shouldn't be talked about about animals or something horrible has happened, lend your beautiful knowledge that you're gaining in law school to a letter to the editor um, because they're very powerful advocacy tools that can be really well read a lot about a lot of people and it's very easy. So uh, that's that would be my advice. Well, I'm just going to follow up on what Camille said because I normally, you know, since we've been doing this and certainly since animal justice has been on the scene, it's been like every year is building on the year before and get bigger and better and bigger and better. And, and I see at my own law school that like every, just about every student club took a real hit in the, during the pandemic. Like most clubs cease to exist and essentially many, many clubs at our school just cease to exist or have died down to like one person. And I really do think, you know, when you're, when you're half online or part, you know, maybe you're in person, but there's still not as much socializing. There is a real tendency for these groups that I think are really important. I think the animal justice group at the University of Alberta did a lot, and I'm not sure that they're in existence right now. And if they are, I think they're small. And I think what we need is for, it's almost like we're in a period of rebuild. Like we need to rebuild these clubs and re-get the discussion going around these issues. And to me, that's that's as important as anything else we're going to do. I really do think that, you know, we are stronger when we're stronger as a community. And I think the community has been hit like many communities because of COVID. And I think we need to rebuild that. And I'll just add that Animal Justice does offer grants for student clubs of up to $500 per year. So if you're listening and you're keen to get one of those grants to bring exposure to your club and to these issues, please uh, contact Sam Skinner. Uh, They're the student program lawyer and can help you with that and can help you get a club started if that's something you're interested in pursuing or, or get support for one that already does exist. All right, Jess, Peter, we're into the trivia section. My favorite trivia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I am, I am woefully unprepared for this this year, but let's That's go. okay. <laughs> Usually you float the whole boat on the trivia and the special questions. So Jess and yes. I will pick up some of those slides right. today. We're prepared. Right. We're well prepared. That's okay. good. Jess, why don't you go first? Okay, first. All right. So my first question for all you lovely listeners, there are two wild animals currently being held captive in Canada who have been deemed by advocates and in the media as among the, quote, loneliest of their kind in the world. Who are they and where are they being held? And let me just say, if if you want to answer this this one, but I'm not going to answer it. I actually know (laughs) this one. Okay, that's great. Good for you, Peter. If, (laughs) if If you're a member of the audience and you'd like to answer and you're not Peter, you can do so by raising your hand in the Zoom chat function. Watching for hands. So it's just Can I said. hint that they both come up on Paw and Order a fair bit? <laughs> yes. <laughs> how, hey? Like yes. probably most episodes, I would say. Well, one of them hasn't come up in a while, but one came up last episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Oh, I see a hand up. Where did it go? Liz Wheeler. Liz, do you want to... Actually, how do we do this? I forget. Oh, Liz, do you want to type the answer in the chat? Yeah, there you go. Oh yeah. Even better than putting up everybody's hands. Just type the answer in the chat if you know. And the person who um, who gets there first uh, is the winner. So we'll just give Liz a moment to add an answer into the chat. But yeah, these, these two animals, I feel awful for. Um, you know, the good thing is that they both received a fair amount of media attention. Yeah, but- international media attention. But so far, so far it has not amounted to any any changes. I mean, even with a lot of celebrity, here's a hint, a lot of celebrity. There you go. Yeah, there, you go, there we Liz go. Wheeler. All right, Liz. Wheeler. Liz says Kiska and Lucy, Marineland and the Edmonton Zoo. So Kiska is the orca in Marineland and Lucy is the elephant at the Edmonton Zoo. So yeah, that's the answer. Um, thank you so much for that, Liz. Great job. We do talk nice about job, them a lot. Yes, I was going to say my dog, Chili, when my wife went to Europe, but that probably was... <laughs> He was, he was he was pretty lonely. Aww. <laughs> he follows my wife everywhere. And like for three weeks, he was like, he didn't know where to go. He's like, who's this man taking care of me? Yeah, I'm he so eventually sure gravitated. The funny thing is he gravitated to me. So for three weeks, I was like all everything. And now I never see him. Never. <laughs> he doesn't even, he doesn't, he, just, he literally does not even acknowledge my existence. He just it's ignores really you? Oh God. Yeah. It's, I'm only there when my wife goes away. So. <laughs> Anyway, all right, let's go. Next. All question. right, next question. Get ready to answer in the Zoom chat box, not the feed loop one. Uh, so my my next trivia question: This June, a devastating heat dome hit British Columbia and a lot of the, the west of the rest uh, the rest of the west coast, with temperatures reaching close to fifty degrees Celsius in some parts of the province for days at a time. According to Freedom of Information documents, how many farmed animals died during the BC heat dome event? So ooh, I don't even know that one. <laughs> please this tell is, me. Please tell me you don't need an exact answer. I was just right. about to say we do not need an exact answer. A range will be fine. A range. Put a guess in, and oh, we'll go Jessie. with the closest one. Um, yeah, Jesse says around six hundred thousand. It is around six hundred thousand. Jesse, thank Jeez. you for the answer. Uh, the precise number that we were able to obtain based on some freedom of information requests that were filed. Um, thank you to the person who did that. Uh, is six hundred and fifty-one thousand animals. Wow. So that includes. Uh, turkeys, that includes chickens raised for meat, that includes chickens raised for eggs. That does not include pigs or cows because the industries in charge of monitoring those two industries um, did not collect numbers on deaths. So we're oh, talking wow. about over half a million animals and only a very brief, like week long or less period um, perished on farms because of the heat wave. And I but see animals now that in the are US... not the most vulnerable beings, right? right. No. In the US, they're talking now about uh, increased prices, of course, in meat, dairy, and eggs because of the heat and that's gonna that's gonna impact consumers oh (laughs) the poor consumers oh no yeah well what i find just so frustrating about this is that it's actually an offense in bc to cause distress to an animal uh by failing to protect them from extreme weather conditions so yeah but what kind of animal camille (laughs) well there's no specific exemption for farmed animals i'm just saying just saying all right sorry for kind of a downer of a question (laughs) be reasonable camille come on you, you have one that's a little bit more positive, I think. Okay, yeah. Okay, uh, my, my next two are pretty are pretty easy. Um, okay, what long time grassroots animal welfare initiative finally made it onto this year's Liberal Party election platform, and that we're going to make sure they uphold? Woohoo! Surely y'all know this. This is yay. 
Yeah, that, that was, was an easy one. Fast. Nice job. Jenna Jeffrey says horse export. Yes, the live export of horses for slaughter made it onto the list. I remember calling Jan Arden, like I said on the last episode, and it was a moment I will never forget and telling her that it happened. It was glorious. And now when it actually does happen, Jen and I are going to have a party. <laughs> I was pleased to hear, Camille, that the um, the um, the a move to thoroughly reform the animal cruelty provisions of the criminal code has been put on the liberal platform for the year 2267. So we're almost there, Camille. Any day now. Any day now. Any day, Any day now. Hold your breath. <laughs> I don't hold my breath. <laughs> well, that is definitely good news. And I have another question that also has some good news in it. Which province's veterinary association just became the latest to ban its members from performing cat decline procedures? Oh. Anybody know the answer to this? I didn't even know that. No. Thrown up. An answer's been thrown up already. Is it correct? Uh oh, uh, Bianca says Quebec. No, unfortunately, Bianca, it's not Quebec. It's Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan just became the latest province to join this club. Quebec and Ontario are still laggards. They have not made this move. I believe everybody else has now done so, actually. I think it's just Quebec and Ontario that are left. But let me ask another question. Most provinces have accomplished this. It's not really the provinces that are doing it. It's the veterinary associations who are saying their members can't perform the procedure. So it's not like there's a law that says it's illegal Mm. to to claw cats. But there's one province that has introduced an actual law. Does anybody know which province? Oh, I think I know this one. I think I know this one too. I think I wrote a whole article about it. I should probably know. Funny how to you me, can it's, actually it's, write an op-ed about something or an article. I was about to say, so Bianca has my guess, but I have one other. It's one of two. But well, I, Bianca, is Bianca correct? Bianca is correct. It's Nova yeah, Scotia. Right. The only I knew I knew it was Nova Scotia or PEI, but I was but that was a cu- that was a couple years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I was that trying was... to give excuses for my lack of memory. It was like, like maybe three, three or four. four years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I knew it wasn't expected. Alberta. That was easy. What? <laughs> Imagine <laughs> Alberta hasn't amended its animal law in a long time. Yeah. Don't hold your breath on that one either. <laughs> no, not holding my breath. Not holding my breath. Okay, my turn? Your turn. Okay, this is a more recent factoid. When does the moratorium on new mink farms in BC end? And why is that specific date significant to advocates? This is an important one. Yes, the one that has not gotten a lot of coverage, just thanks to advocates not really in the news. Yeah, there's been so much work done by great people in BC and across the country to to try to get BC to ban fur farms as Probably many of you know, there have been three fur farms there with minks on them that have actually um, experienced COVID outbreak. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence of that, people are really saying, we need to just shut down these fur farms. Don't let these facilities put everybody at risk. Yeah. And the moratorium was really just on new, the development of new mink farms. So it really was sort of, you know, temporary and not that impactful because they, they continue to farm mink. But why is it that when this moratorium ends, if anybody knows the date, why it's pissing out? advocates off. That's a hint. Well, I'm not (laughs) seeing any answers to your question, Jess. I think you might have to give it to them. Okay. So the end of the moratorium is January 31st, 2022. So that's coming up. And the reason why this is significant, if you follow Ban BC Fur Farms on social media, as they stated, that's where I got the information from, is because that's the beginning of breeding season. Breeding season is February and March for mink. So that means that they'll be able to very easily construct new mink farms and breed a whole 
whole bunch of more new mink starting for next season. Womp womp. Womp womp. Mm. See, this is the problem with half measures. We don't want a yep. moratorium, a temporary moratorium. We want an actual ban. Oh, also, I read that they're, they've spent so much money federally um, funding development of a vaccine for COVID for mink. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, there's. I, I posted it on my Instagram recently that it was millions, millions of dollars uh, in, in funding to vaccinate mink. <laughs> yeah, really, that's what we should be spending subsidy. on. Yeah, 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 we should that's definitely what we be. Should be spending money on throw in more money at this dying industry that nobody supports anymore because fur is dead. Cool. Yeah, like who's paying for the vaccine and who's paying for the fur? Yeah, yeah. it's us. <laughs> Public money. We're yeah. subsidizing them at every step of the way. Ugh. Well, speaking of fur, here's our next one. Which major outerwear company announced this past June that it would drop fur from its product by the end of 2022? <laughs> Who else could it be? I mean, Who else could it be? <laughs> I, mean, I was there's actually There's actually a few companies. Oh, there's a few? Well, well there, there's I'm at least guess. one you have, you have to say who was it first that got the ball rolling for the rest. That's how I was going to write it when that was going to be my question. Right. <laughs> We've got a guess from back from uh, Bianca Saint Laurent. I don't no. think that guess is correct. No, no. This is just to give everybody a hint. This is a company that Animal Justice has had its sights on uh-huh. since pretty much uh-huh. there it is. Canada uh-huh. Goose. Uh-huh. There it is. Canada Goose. Yeah, yes. got a few a few answers coming in pretty much simultaneously for Canada Goose. So well done. Yes, and who knows what the second big one was after that? Bonus point. A very stupid company with a stupid name. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Anyone know the second one? Stupid logo too. It's all very stupid. We could say that, right? We're allowed. Oh yeah. To... You'll Fair be my comment. lawyer if I get sued. Your <laughs> comment. Okay, it is. I don't even like saying it. It's Moose Knuckle. Moose knuckle was. What does that even mean? Moose knuckles? You don't want to know, Camille. Don't ask oh. that. <laughs> Whoops. Okay. Don't ask I'm that. not gonna Google that. <laughs> don't Google it. <laughs> yeah, moose knuckle was uh, made the same, pretty much the same uh, promise right after Canada Goose did, and around that same time, I think it was Nima Marcus said that they were gonna stop the sale eventually too. Like things happened. I remember I was writing the column, and I had to go back and edit the column for Global Mail like three times before they could publish it because things happened so fast. It's great. Wow. Yeah. The pace. What's change what's, around for this year has been intense. yes and what's the status on Macage or Macage or whatever did oh. they end up getting them to to do it too uh i think Macage did ditch for because the pressure campaign was intense and ongoing and i yeah. can't remember if they were successful yet or not they did yeah i just googled it while we were talking they dropped fur in um sometime earlier this year too not bad right so shout out to the activists because that was a big activist um pressure campaign that was going on for a long time yeah let me just say none of these companies deserve credit themselves this is all things to society all the pressuring them. All yes. the activists. Shout yeah. out Jenny McQueen. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think we're at our last trivia question for this episode. So here's your last chance to get some points and perhaps that sweet pie and order mug. <laughs> okay. So there's... There's one question. I might add a second one onto this, depending what people say. But how many Canadian jurisdictions introduced new egg gag laws in 2021? And when I say that, I mean, you know, introduced a bill or put forward something new that we hadn't heard of already. Who has some guesses around this? That's a tricky one. It is a little tricky because of the timing. I guess too. I know it's around there. We've got a four. We've got a three. Mm. We're talking about 2021, by the way. Yeah, that's right. 2021. We're going down to two. I'll I'll take you. 
know a couple more guesses. Sam says 2121, just Manitoba. Still haven't heard the right answer yet. So I'm going to tell everybody what it is. Zero. No one has come forward with uh, a proposed uh, egg, egg law in 2021. It was, it was all 2020. Yeah, that's well, 2019 and 2020 is right. when they were proposed. Many of them passed. Ontario, uh, oh, sorry, Alberta was 2019. Ontario was 2020. Manitoba introduced it, but didn't pass it until 2021. So it was introduced uh, in 2020. And same thing with the federal egg, egg bill. It was introduced in 2020. And also PEI was introduced in 2020. I was just going to say the same thing Liz said. You cannot be asking these questions about 2021 because like the last year has just been freaking blur. Right? Like, that is actually did, extremely fair. When did one year end and the other even begin? Like who even knows that right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Actually, this is completely unfair of me. But I, it's designed to be a positive trivia question because the point is that yes. I feel like ag-gag laws, their time is coming and going. Um, I think yep. at the going phase, they sort of were a trend for a while. Uh, there's constitutional challenges happening, or at least one so far, probably more. And the tide, I think, has turned against them. And in fact, in 2021, um, Parliament defeated one of those ag-gag laws mm-hmm. in a pretty significant way. I shouldn't say defeated entirely, but there was a partial victory at committee and then an election which scrapped it all together. So I think it's good news for potentially stopping the rise of these laws. Still some on the books to fight, but um, that's the question. Still some? (laughs) Several. Yes. I like your positive attitude. Like your positive attitude. Let's just say it'll keep us busy for a few years. Uh Yeah, no doubt. Uh Uh Oh, good for us. Look at at great answers, everyone. Yeah, that was fun. So I don't know. We'll have to tally these up and see if we've got any winners here, but uh, we'll, we'll be in touch maybe about some mugs for some of you folks. Thanks to everybody who took part. I think that wraps up our live show today. Oh no, already? Time flies (laughs) so fast. Well, I'm pumped for the panel tonight and everything coming forward in the next few days. uh, I've looked through the schedule and it looks very exciting. Let us know what you thought of the conference if you're listening to this after it happened. Uh, We're so excited to enjoy the rest of the weekend. And this was a ton of fun. Thanks everybody, as always, for all your support of Pawn Order. It's always, always, we've been doing it for a while now, Camille and, and Jessica. Um, and yeah, it's great to hear newbie people, forever. I'm the newbie people forever. still enjoy it. That's right. We're coming up on four years. So, you know, it is, it is four years in January. Eh? Crazy. It is. It is. Yeah. It is. All right, everybody. Oh. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back with you with a regularly scheduled show in another few weeks. Take care. Thanks all. Bye. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ow!